This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Well, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to, we're going to actually work through verses 5 through 25, and it's very narrative in style, and so I'm going to work through it in, 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 uh, just piece by piece and thought by thought, uh, because there's a lot, there's a lot to, of background again that I want to that I want to make sure we give you. So what we're going to do is instead of starting in Luke one, we're actually going to go to the book of Malachi, chapters three and four. I know you woke up this morning wondering about Malachi, so we're going to address that first. So let's, uh, if you, it, while you're looking for Malachi, I'll pray. That'll give you time to get there. All right, <laughs> it's the last book in the Old Testament. Let's pray. God, I, I pray this morning that our time here in the next few minutes will be pleasing to you. I pray that it would be profitable to us and that we would hear right now from the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Malachi chapter 3, I'm going to read a couple verses in there here in just a minute. So all of human history uh, is about Jesus. When I say that everything is about Jesus, that literally, that God's story is, is, is all encompassing and it's all leading us to what Jesus did and what Jesus does for us, all right? So everything, everything, everything in all time, all nations, all languages, all cultures, all races, all classes, all genders of people, God is working out everything according to his plan. And he's not the author of sin, he's altogether good. And so he can't be the author of sin, but he's so powerful that he'll even use sin for his purposes. And that's something we talked about a few weeks ago. I remember we were out at Monica's porch and I, and I went through a, in a real deep theological study about how God will do that. It's amazing, it's a mind twister sometimes to think about how he does, but I'm thankful that he does because there's incredible sin and evil in the world. And sometimes we wonder, what is God doing? And you can trust in a sovereign God that he is actually doing something in that. When it seems like he's silent, he's actually doing something. He actually really is. We may not see it, we may not understand it, we may not comprehend it, but we trust it. And, we, and that's, that's what it means to be God. That's what it means to be, when we say he's sovereign, that's what it actually means, that he really is sovereign. This doctrine of sovereignty works itself out in what we would consider to be the, prov the providence of God. For example, God did not make Judas betray Jesus. But Judas betrayed Jesus, and in doing so, our sins are forgiven. Jesus went to the cross because that man went and had him arrested. And so that was that seemed at the time to be a horrible thing. The disciples were scared to death. But God uses that kind of thing to do something incredible, to actually work out his will. He is actively at work all the time for good in the lives of all of his people all the time, whether we understand it or not, whether we comprehend it as good or not, he is good. And one of the ways that we can easily see this is looking back through the prophetic promises. 
where God is sovereign over controlling everything, all of the future things that are going to happen, and he actually shares it in advance through his servants and people who wrote it down for us, and he uses, he raises up prophets to predict what he's going to do in the future. So he predetermines what's going to happen in the future, and then he raises up prophets to announce that that's going to happen. And on one of those occasions is the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. That if those of you that grew up in the 80s, not that redheaded guy that went through the corn and killed little kids, or, or actually raised up, he, he led a cult of little kids that killed people, right? That's, that's not the Malachi I'm talking about. Children of the Corn. Classic. Love that movie. Uh, yeah. So. I actually watched it in group guidance with Mr. Arnott, who recently passed away. Uh, God bless him. But uh, yeah, he showed us Children of the Corn. Group guidance. I don't know. If I'm... <laughs> Telling tales. So the book of Malachi, uh, chapters 3 and 4, there's some incredible prophecy that takes place here. This is actually going to be God's final word until we pick up the story that we're studying in Luke chapter 1. And so it's God's anticipatory and preparatory word for his people at that time for what is to come. Because they're always looking for the Messiah, the one who is to come. So Malachi 3, verse 1 um, this is written, again, 400 years before Luke, okay? So 400 years before Jesus was born, the sovereign God of the universe says this. Verse 1 in chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay? So God is speaking, saying, I am coming. I'm going to come to the earth that I created. And before I come, in, before I come into human history, a messenger, a preacher... A prophet is going to come before me, and he's going to proclaim and herald my coming that's going to inaugurate the, the unveiling so of, of what's going to happen. So let's continue here in verse 1. And the Lord, this is ultimately the Lord Jesus he's talking about, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to where? His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord of hosts is the God who rules over the angels and the demons. So this is an Old Testament prophecy that John the baptizer, so many of you know him as John the Baptist, uh, and I like to call him the baptizer because it's just what he did. He baptized people, and he wasn't, he wasn't part of the Baptist tradition um, that came much later. But John the baptizer, all right? He was coming. He was going to be the messenger to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this, he says, will happen around the temple, which was ultimately actually destroyed in 70 AD, which means the Messiah has already come. So if any of you, so this is, I want to say this as compassionately as I can, but all of our Jewish friends that are still looking for a Messiah have actually missed him. He came to the temple, and they're waiting in vain. They're looking, they're looking, and he already came. There is no temple anymore, because we don't need the temple anymore. We have Jesus, and all the ministries of the temple have been fulfilled in Jesus. That's the whole purpose of Jesus coming. So Malachi 4, if you flip the page to 4, at the end of the, the very end, of, so these are the last verses of the Old Testament, verses 5 and 6, tells us this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, 
lest I come and strike the land with a, with a decree of utter destruction. So what he says here is, here are the next events that are going to take place in human history. That's basically what he's telling this prophet. A messenger is coming, and he'll be coming to the temple before 70 AD. He'd have to to get to the temple because there is none anymore. A prophet proclaiming repentance to everyone, and, and he's doing that to prepare for the coming of the Lord, which will be Jesus Christ. And one of the effects of his ministry, so one of the things that you'll see and know about this being the, the right person is that you'll see that people, that fathers' hearts will turn back to love their children, and children's hearts will turn and love their father, and they'll want to come out and repent, and he'll be baptizing them, and that's where he gets his name, John the Baptizer. And so then, after this is said, after this word is given to this prophet, silence for 400 years. No book of the Bible is written. No prophet speaks. Some begin to wonder in that time, 400 years. I mean, some, there's no doubt that people probably were wondering during that time, has God's provision left our nation, the nation of Israel? I mean, is, you know, one generation after the next becomes maybe a little bit more stiff-necked, a little bit more hard-hearted, a little bit more cold. People aren't walking with God the way as they ought and as, as they should. And, and, and there, there, there may be a remnant or of a few people who are seriously devoted to the Lord, but there's 400 years of silence. That's a long, long time. How old is our nation? 244 years? 244 years old. 400 years of silence. That's twice the length of the age of our country. Do you know what God was doing during that 400 years? Was he doing nothing? The people felt like he was. I'm sure they felt like he was, but he was at work. He was doing his good purpose. Do you think those generations of people saw it? Do you think they felt like God was working in their lives? Do you think they understood what was happening? Probably not, but we lean not on our own understanding, right? Proverbs 3, 5 says. So, then everything begins to change. Fast forward 400 years to Luke chapter 1. So now we go to the book of Luke. And we read in the book of Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now Herod here is called Herod the Great. Okay, so we know him as Herod, king of Judea, or Herod the Great. And king of Judea would mean that he ruled over the region of the Jews. Okay, so he was, he, was, he was the Jewish ruler in that day. He's not Caesar. He's not Caesar Augustus. He's not the highest ranking governmental official in the Roman world. He's a, what you'd call a provincial, uh, a provincial king where he would have a, a province, all right? So his, and his province was the Jews. And so that, that title, actually, you may have heard that title, King of the Jews. Well, it would later become a mocking title that they would place on Jesus' cross, so Herod is a really curious man. I want to talk about Herod for a second so that you get a, an understanding of what, of, of what was going on at this time when, when, when John the Baptist was, was about to be born and when Jesus was about to be born. Herod comes from the family line of Esau. You remember who Esau is? Those of you maybe heard some Old Testament stories growing up or, or if you've read the Bible a little bit, you might know that, that in, in the story of Jacob and Esau, two brothers in the Old Testament, Jacob was, was chosen of God, Esau was not. And these guys came out of the womb just duking it out all the time. They were fighting like crazy. They, they, they come out and they become two nations. They end up, they end up becoming two nations of people. 
Jacob the Israelites, and Esau the Edomites, okay? So throughout the Old Testament, the Edomites just keep trying to kill the Israelites. So it's like Jacob and Esau sort of began this, this feud that just never stopped, and, and these nations continued it on. And the Edomites just kept trying to kill the Israelites, and so it culminates to Herod trying to kill Jesus. Herod is a family name. And it's a lineage of the Edomites. So Herod hears that Jesus is born, and he hears people calling him the king of the Jews, that this is one who's going to be the king of the Jews. And Herod's like, no, 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 I want to be the king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews. And so he hears that. And we know that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew, Matthew talks about, if you go to Matthew's gospel, you read about how Herod will order the slaughter of all the firstborn sons in that day after he hears this. And of course, there's much weeping in the land at that time. So this conflict is really severe, and it's very historical. And Herod is the prototypical Edomite. Jesus is the true Israel. This is not a great time for God's people. It's, it's, it's a really great time for the Romans. It's a great time of success for the Roman government um, who rule over God's people at that time. They're ruling over the Jews. But this man, Herod, is not a godly man. He does not love God. He's, he does not love God's people. He actually works for the Roman government, and he's like a puppet king of, of the Jewish people. And, and so all the Roman government cares about and all Herod would care about and all the people that, that rule in that, in that day, they just care, all they cared about was safe passageway on their roads for their soldiers. They cared about that. They cared about good income. And they just cared about themselves. They didn't really care. And, they, and so they allowed them to worship whatever God they chose. They didn't care about that. As long as you pay the taxes, that's really all they cared about. And so this man Herod is really amazing when you study what, what he was like. I mean, he was very maniacal. He was brilliant and evil. And that's the worst kind of evil, right? Being brilliant and evil, it's the worst kind. And, 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 and he had, um, he, was, he actually was one of the most legendary architects in, human, in, in, in all civilization throughout the world. If you were ever to have the privilege of visiting Jerusalem, and I've never been there. I've looked, I've looked at pictures. Uh, but if you ever had the, the privilege of going there, which I would love to do someday, much of what you would see today, 2,000 years later, including the outlying areas of J Jerusalem, such as places like Caesarea, where, where Peter was from, and even Nazareth, where Jesus was from, some more smaller towns. But all the remains uh, of things that you, would, that you would find were things that Herod had built. Herod had built tons of things. This guy raised unbelievable amounts of money. He built epic structures he built temples and places of worship and palaces and cities. And in one location in Caesarea, he actually built a harbor, a harbor where there was no harbor. He invented quick dry cement with ash from Italy. And he would, and, and he would take you know, and sand, he would take sand and would be floated out in boxes and dropped into the water. And, and with the water, it would turn into quick dry cement. And he would just keep stacking them and stacking them and stacking them until he built a harbor where ships could come and take cargo out and bring it back in so that he could make more money and he would be even more rich and famous. Those are the kinds of things that he invented, that he did. This guy was brilliant and evil, don't forget. So evil that he even murdered his own wife. And he murdered two of his sons. I can't even, and I can't even fathom a man who would murder his wife and sons. But because he was so committed to control, he was such a paranoid ruler that he thought that they might abdicate his role at some point because they were his family members, so he had him murdered. 
Well, later in life, we know we know that he went a little bit crazy, and it was reported that at nighttime he would wake up sometimes and forgetting that he had murdered his wife. And so he would call out to her, and he'd get angry at his servants because they weren't bringing him his wife that he had murdered. Right? I mean, he's an unbelievable man. He actually murdered a lot of people, not just his family, which is, I mean, if you, you may as well murder more people if you're going to murder your family. But he was so paranoid, and he was so controlling that he would send out spies to eavesdrop on the conversations of the people in the cities, like the peasant people. He, he outlawed things like free speech and free assembly. You weren't allowed to get together and talk at all about him. If someone mentioned his name and he overheard it, he would just have you killed. He would even himself dress up in peasant's garb and go down and eavesdrop on the citizens himself. And it got to the point to where he murdered so many people for political and so many political opponents that there was a eventually there's going to be a huge public outcry, I would think, against somebody like this. And, and so he was like, OK, uh, I, I probably need to stop doing this. So one of the things that he also did was he, he enjoyed a lot of different palaces. So he built himself many palaces. And he had sort of a safe house that he had built as a refuge um, for himself, and, and it had, he had like this big pool in it. And so he thought to himself, I can't just keep killing people. I'd eventually get in lots of trouble, and people might start to get angry with me, and there might actually be an uprising. So what he would do if he was unhappy with you is he'd say, hey, why don't you come up to my house in Caesarea? Stay with me at my beach house, and we'll have a nice swim party with me at my pool, right? And then people would accidentally drown. <laughs> Lots of people had drowning accidents in this pool. So then if there's a public outcry and they're like, Herod, you got to stop murdering people. He'd just say, well, I don't murder anyone. I just have a really dangerous pool and a bunch of friends that can't swim, right? That's kind of the way things worked. I mean, he was really bad. So the point is, he was a bad guy, a really bad guy. We think we have bad guys ruling over us. He was a bad guy. He was a bad guy. And so what Luke tells us here in chapter 1 is that all of this happened in the days of that man, Herod, king of Judea. So where did it happen? We're working out the setting of all of this taking place. Where does it happen? The city of Jerusalem. One of the most important cities in all of history and one of the most frequently mentioned cities in all of the Bible, the city of Jerusalem. The Bible calls it the city of David. Jerusalem is an amazingly important city in biblical and redemptive history. It's a place of about 3,000 years old at present. So like if you were to go there and investigate, you'd recognize that there are actually 10 layers of civilization just stacked on top of one another. And they're just continually to this day unearthing in archaeological digs various places and objects and they're, that they're learning about this place, Jerusalem, even to this day. And Jerusalem is a place where God... Um, appointed for his people to worship him, right? Go to Jerusalem and worship. It would be a place where evangelism would begin. That's why Jesus says that we are to be witnesses from, where does he begin with? From Jerusalem. It would start there. And he says Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jerusalem is to be the place where the gospel takes root and it goes out from Jerusalem and the worship of God is then enjoyed by God's people and it spreads to all nations and to the ends of the earth. And in Jesus' day, Jerusalem was a huge town, probably around 100,000 people or more. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal in our day. I mean, that sounds like, oh, it's Springfield, Ohio, something like that. But it's, it's, it, it, we have big, major urban cities, right? We're a million, of people, million people or so. But to them in that day, when you read of other cities and towns in the Bible, for example, Peter is from Capernaum, uh, and Jesus is from Nazareth. 
uh, these are really rural small towns. These towns are people, uh, these are towns like 50 people. That's, I mean, like that's what, that's what, you know, maybe a hundred at the most in Capernaum. Jesus's hometown was extremely small, Nazareth, very, very small, very rural. And so a town of a hundred thousand people, that is enormous. And people would, would, would come to Jerusalem and they would long to come to Jerusalem, especially those who are worshipers of God. They would want to take that pilgrimage, that, that journey to Jerusalem. And it would sometimes, depending on where they're coming from, take them days to walk. And it was very hot, of course, in that, in that place, 100 degree heat at some points. And so it, it's a really strong devotion and commitment to make that trip. Jerusalem is also set up on a hill. It's, it's literally set on a hill. You hear Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5 that the church is to be a city on a hill. Well, that's Jerusalem. It's a city on a hill that belongs to God, and everyone gets to see it. Jerusalem is set up on a hill, and it's carved mostly of rock. And to this day, even to this day, you would hear Jews speak of Israel uh, as they would in the days of old. They don't speak of going to Jerusalem. They actually speak of it in this way. They speak of ascending to Jerusalem. And the reason why is because to get to Jerusalem, you would have to physically walk up towards Jerusalem. And as you walked, they would often sing and your voice would go up because you're walking up and your voice is going up to God and your heart would go up to God. And the impression was that you were going up to Jerusalem to meet with God. If you ever read the Psalms, the Psalms are songs that were written to the Lord. And some of the Psalms, if you notice, when you go through the Psalms, you'll notice that there are titles for some of them, and some of the Psalms are called Psalms of Ascent. That's why. Because they would ascend to Jerusalem, and they would often sing those Psalms. They would sing them as they walked up that hill and up the steps into the temple. So let's talk about that. Luke 1, all transpires during the time of Herod the Great in the city of Jerusalem, and where? Where at? So after 400 years of silence, when they're under the governance of this really crooked Roman puppet king who hates them, but he uses their money for his own glory, and it's during one of the most ambitious rebuildings of any civilization in the history of the world. And so what Herod does during his lifetime is he rebuilds the temple. He rebuilds the temple. The temple had become neglected, and it would, off, it would become in ruins. And so here's the full setting of Luke's gospel. In the days of Herod, in the city of Jerusalem, to the location of the temple. So if you're watching it like a movie, it'd be like the beginning of the movie, the camera would be panning now into the temple. That's the setting. That's where it's taking place. The temple plays a really prominent role throughout the Bible. It's introduced in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke, as we'll see, and then the story moves to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, to Capernaum, where he meets Peter, and then ultimately back to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem, away from Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem. In the temple, away from the temple, back to the temple. That's sort of the chronology of Luke's story, uh, and Luke's telling of the story of Jesus and Jesus' life. So let me tell you a little bit about the temple. The temple is really significant, okay? There was a king named David that God gave the plans to build a temple, to construct the temple, okay? David was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He, he longed after another man's wife, and, and he slept with her and had him killed, and so David did not get to build the temple. God didn't allow him to do that. That job was then given to Solomon, David's son. And so Solomon did, according to God's decree, oversee the construction of the temple, the original temple. 
Well, God's glory would fall on the temple. God's people would worship around the temple, and there was a lot of, for years and years, there was a lot of ebbing and flowing of spiritual devotion over the course of many years. It eventually would fall into disrepair as they neglected it, and it had one renewal during the time of Josiah, but ultimately the the temple is where they would go to meet with God. Like, we don't understand that. We don't get that because we have the Holy Spirit, and Jesus says that everywhere his people are, everywhere someone who has faith in him is their God is like we don't we have we're worshiping here today in this place and hundreds and thousands of people are worshiping in other locations and not only on Sundays some on Saturdays and Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and any day you could actually be with people of of, of faith and you could you could enjoy the presence of God anytime you want we don't understand what it was like for them in Old Testament days to not be able to choose to be in the presence of God whenever they wanted. We don't understand what life is like, really like, outside of God's common presence, his common grace. God's presence is everywhere where we are. You may not always sense it, feel him, understand him, but he is. And and to live in a day when you had to go to a place physically to experience the presence of God, I think you would notice the difference a lot more than we tend to notice the difference today. Well, that's what it was like for them. But that temple was eventually just out of shape. It just, it, they, let it, they let it go, okay? What's amazing, even after that temple had been destroyed, I mean, that's a crisis. <laughs> I mean, because what, what does Malachi say? Remember, we started with Malachi. And Malachi said that the Lord would come to the temple. His temple. Well, if there's no temple, there's a crisis. Well, I mean, so what happens? Well, we need a second temple. Well, along comes this man who is so egotistical, he wants to rebuild the temple. Herod. Coincidence? Or is God working here? God's providence. So this temple that Herod has built is called the Herodian Temple. And what's amazing is Herod is a very godless man. He's a very evil man. Yet God uses, in God's sovereignty, he uses Herod to build the temple that would ultimately fulfill the prophecy of God's telling us that there's going to be one who would come 400 years earlier. This is how God works. He even uses unbelievers and evildoers, even with their selfish motives. It's not that God commands them to sin. It's just that it's just, it's, it's, it's a mind twister how he uses that. I mean, it, it's not that he blesses their sin even, but he even, but he just uses it. He uses it and he turns it for good. Everything he does, everything he does is for good. That is, that is literally what it means, that God is good. He will use evil and turn it for good. That's, who, that's what it means to be God. It's amazing when you pause to consider all that Herod built and how it was used to bring Jesus into the world. I mean, even though he himself tried to have Jesus murdered as a little boy, and he was unsuccessful, everything was used. So Herod was such a power-crazy egomaniac that everything he built was built to incredible cost, like extravagant cost, incredible expense. He spared no expense with anything that he built. And he was such a narcissist that every single stone for all the buildings that this man had constructed had to have a logo on it, and it was his logo. Every stone was cut at about 36 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet. That's how big these stones were in in many of the buildings. 
And, and, and they would weigh about this. When you look it up, you would see that they weighed about what a Boeing 747 would weigh, each stone. And they all had Herod's logo on them, every single one of them. So wherever people would go throughout Jerusalem, they'd be like, oh, that's a man, that's amazing. Oh, Herod. Oh, Herod. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, Herod. 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 It's like, it's like the Nike swoosh. It's everywhere. It's just prominent, right? You see it and you know. Oh, Herod. And that's, that's what Herod wanted. He wanted it on everything, including the temple. I actually want to show you. We, I, I found a couple pictures, some photos of a rendering because the temple has been destroyed. We know it was destroyed in 70 AD, right? So we can't actually show you real pictures today of the temple. Uh, it was destroyed. <laughs> Jesus said it would be destroyed, and he was right. So we don't, and, and we, don't, we don't need the temple anymore. We have Jesus. So we don't go to the temple anymore. We just go to Jesus, and that's, that's just so you know. But this is actually, um, what this is, is a, is a rendering, all right? There is a, there's a guy named Alec Garrard. He's a retired farmer. He spent 30 years building a scale model of Herod's temple, and he actually hired architects to, to do scaled drawings of what it would look like in real life, like if you're able to see it today. So this is, this is, this is just part of it, so you can see the main portion of it. There's a, a whole outer court all around you can see, and there's an inner court, and then you go inside, and the Holy of Holies is there, which is where the priests work. Okay, Go, go to the next one, Ali, and see what we got. So yeah, so there's that guy. There's Alec Garrard. He's standing over his model, okay? Some of you have the ESV. If you have the ESV study Bible, I think it's white and it has uh, red letters on, on, on the outside. The ESV, the people who put that together actually hired architects as well to do a what would look like a modern rendering of, of what the temple would look like in Jerusalem. So you can actually see the city on the hill and the temple there, and it's just wild. So, so this is what it's like. It's on top of the hill. Go ahead. I think there's like four or five more. So there's more of the inside. So there, you can sort of see the, how big it is and the, pe the little people there. And just this would be the courts. And this would be the area where, for example, there'd be a lot of, um, a lot of there'd be gift shops there. <laughs> there'd be a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on. This is, so when Jesus goes in and he starts clearing the temple, I mean, this is it. This is the area where he was at. Um, what else do we have? Oh, there's there's the inside. So there's that's not the inner innermost holy of holies, but that's just some of the the inner you know, on the inside of the inner court there, and uh, and then finally, yeah, there 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 it is again. So that would be the inner court, and then this would be that hallway of the pillars that you just saw on the last one. So this is an incredible thing. This is what it, so this is what it would have looked like in the days of Herod. This is Herod. This is the Herod's temple. So on top of a city on a hill, there was this temple, and you had the courts, and the, the square footage would be about twice the size of the one that Solomon had built. Herod just, he just, he, so he blew out a lot more rock to do this. Everything with Herod's got to be bigger and better than everything else. It's like Herod's from Texas. And everything that he did, it, it, he had to also, like, it, he had a place that was near this. Like, you, you, you know that Herod had a palace that was near this. So like he couldn't have God's place overshadow his. Like it's like, okay, here's God's house and it's incredible, but over here's mine. You know, the Holy of Holies is here, and then I live in the same neighborhood. So God, you can rule spiritually, I'm gonna rule politically and financially. And so Herod actually had a place near there as well. So people can come here and worship you, but they need to see my logo on all the stones in here, and on their way out, they can also buy my goods and fill my pockets. Right? That's that's sort of the way Herod was going. So you wonder why Jesus would go to the temple and sort of freak out and throw over the tables and say, this is my father's house, not your house. Well, it's because Herod set up shop next to Yahweh, the God of the universe. And Jesus didn't like that. 
So, why do people want to go to the temple in the days of Jesus? So as, as we get, you know, why would, why would you know, God-fearing people want to go to this place? Well, there are actually five reasons why. And, and I'll just give them to you really quick. It's, it's, it's a place sort of between heaven and earth. Like I, like I said, it's God's presence. It, it is the place where God's presence dwells. Like no longer is he, you know, or now no longer is he in a place like that. He's here. He's in you. But then that's where he dwelt. And so to go there would be like connecting in a very supernatural way. And it, was, it sort of provided them solace from their current circumstances. Secondly, it's a place where we know God's presence dwelt in, in the Holy of Holies. And so they would go and God's glory and his presence would deal most heavily and most weightily uh, when they're there with them. I mean, they could, they could think about God and they could pray to God and they could teach their kids about God. But it was like when they were there, it was actually God doing it, God doing the ministry. So it's a middle point between heaven and earth. It's a mediator. So it's a, it's a mediator point where God dealt with them. And then third, it's where God's people would all come together to meet him. So you would go there and you would pray and you would sing and you would meet with God. And it was sort of the closest you could get with God. It was like a place to congregate. And fourth, it was a place where sin would be atoned for. And that was a major ministry of the temple. You would come and bring sacrifices and then blood would be shed in the, in the back particularly on Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement, where the, days that, um, the day that Jews would simply call the day, which would be where sacrifices would be offered, because without shedding of blood, according to the Old Testament scriptures, there could be no forgiveness of sins, because the wage of sin is death. And so these animals that they would bring to the temple would be substituted for themselves, for their, for their own death. And that would foreshadow Jesus, who had to come to be a substitute for all of us to die in the place of our sins. And then fifthly, it's where God's people would come together to worship him together. So like they would go and worship in their own synagogues, in their own hometowns. But if you lived in a home, uh, you know, a small home in that day, five, six hundred, seven hundred square feet. And part of that home is in, you know, inhabited by your livestock. You would get together in the synagogue with people in your town. But there might only be 20 or 30 people there. But when you went to Jerusalem the large city, you would, you would get to the city on the hill in the temple and your heart would just be filled. There's something powerful about a large gathering of people together going and singing the Psalms. And as you got closer, you would hear their voices and you would, you would smell the, 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 the burning of the, of, of, of the, the, the incense. And you would, cause that's one of the things that the priest did inside the Holy of Holies. And you would take a ceremonial bath there in one of the ceremonial baths on the outer court and you would ritually cleanse yourself and you would wear, put on a white robe and as it talks about in the book of Revelation as the bride does on her wedding day because no matter what she's done she's pure in Christ and then you would sing the psalms of ascent as you would go and be with God's people there in the temple and it wouldn't just be 10 or 20 or 30 of you in a small synagogue it would be thousands of you and you'd look around and you would see all these people that were there in the same place to meet with God and you'd never sung with so many people before you'd never heard so many voices before and your heart would be filled and your mind and your soul and everything as you lift your voice would just ascend and there would be a closeness to God. That's why they went. That's why they went. So in the days of Herod, in the city of Jerusalem, at a place called the temple, verse, the rest of verse five, <laughs> in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So we know that the setting for the story is taking place in the days of Herod the Great, and now we meet Zechariah. So Herod is great. Zechariah, he's a nobody. Elizabeth, she's Mrs. Nobody. And here's what we know about Elizabeth. So we, we know that she's from the line of Aaron, which means she comes from a ministry family. So there's generations of ministers, and her name means God's oath. God's oath. Zechariah, his name means the Lord remembers. And it's very important to understand the meaning of their names. God's oath, God's promise, and the Lord remembers. And, and Zechariah would be the equivalent in that day of a pastor. So he's a priest, but it's not a big deal. I mean, it really isn't. He's not a big deal priest. Like, he's not a mega priest. He's from a small little town. He's like, his town is about 50, 100 people. Not a big deal. So at synagogue, there'd be maybe 10, 20, 30 people show up to, to Zechariah's synagogue. And so here's what we know about this couple. For starters, they're old. That's what it says. It says they're old. How old? We're not sure how old they are, but we do know that in that day, uh, Levites, according to the Old Testament requirements, had to retire from ministry at 50. Well, Zechariah is not a Levite priest, um, but it points out that he's old. So there's a good chance that he's over 50. Because they, they actually said he's an old priest, and, and which would, they wouldn't say that about him if he wasn't over 50, because that's typically when a Levite priest would retire. So who knows? He could be 60, 70 years old, but he's old, old older than what you'd consider maybe having children. Elizabeth will be old to, or, as well. So the second thing we find out about this family, this couple, is that they're barren, which means that they can't have any children. They haven't had any children. So there's another couple in the Old Testament that we've read about, Abraham and Sarah, and it's a very similar story. They're beyond their childbearing years. They're unable to have children. Emotionally, this has been devastating. Financially, financially, it's actually kind of dangerous. Unlike in our day, there were no hospices in their day. There was no facilities or care centers. You know, There's no social security. So if you, know, if, if you got old in that day, who took care of you? Your children. That, that was just a natural flow of things. They would look after you. So no children meant great danger for them. So what else we know about them is that they're poor. He's not a big priest. He's not working at the big temple in Jerusalem. He's a simple priest out in the middle of nowhere in the sticks. Uh, probably has a, flock, a really small flock working another job. So he's a nobody and he lives nowhere. And what's he doing? Well, in the eyes of Herod, he's just kind of doing nothing. This is what verses 8 through 10 says. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. So a lot would be like rolling dice, okay? He was chosen by Lot uh, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. That's sort of their job. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so here's what's happening. Being a priest, you got to understand, first of all, being a priest in that day really isn't that big of a deal. It's not, it's not a big deal. There were 18,000 priests, all right? There's a, I mean, it was, a, it was a common thing. It was like every other person you met was a priest. So not a big deal to be a priest. He wasn't a big priest at the temple. He was a little priest out in the woods. And they would subdivide the priesthood into, you know, of, of 18,000 priests into 24 divisions. So 750 men for each division. And they'd each get to go to Jerusalem one time a week. Two times a, a, two times a year, they'd get an opportunity to minister at the temple. And 
so for, they would all come together and they would sort of, it says they, they cast lots. So it'd be like they rolled dice to see who got to do the big job in the temple, this place that we saw here on the screen. Well, what was the big job? Here's the big job. You go in, you throw some incense on the coals, you say a prayer, then you go into the Holy of Holies, throw some incense on the coals, say a prayer. That was it. And you got to do it. If you got selected to do it, you got to do it once and then you're done for life. And they declared you holy and blessed. But you never got to do it again. This is it. I mean, it's like your Super Bowl if you're a priest, right? That's your big day. And, and every year, Zechariah, for who knows how long he would come, you know, maybe, who know, however old he was, 40, it may have been 40, 50 years, he, he went and did this all the way to Jerusalem. And he'd roll the dice with them, loser. I'll do it again, loser, loser. Just never gets picked. He's like the kid that nobody wants at recess, right? In gym class. He's like, he's getting really old now. It's like, will I ever get picked? Some guys never got picked at all for this. They'd go their whole life and never got to go do it. And so we see, again, it says in Proverbs that God is the one who oversees everything, even the casting of the lots. So one day, Zechariah is a very old man, and there he is, and they roll the dice. Zechariah, it looks like it landed on you. It's your turn. It's his big day. So Zechariah gets to go in. It's Zechariah's big moment. So he comes in. He's got one shot, right? This is it. He drops the incense, closes his eyes. He prays. And I think as he prays, he probably prays for two things. I think one of the most obvious things is God deliver our nation. Send the one that Malachi promised. We haven't heard from you in 400 years. Get us out from the rule of Herod. And then I'm guessing that probably his second, based on what happens here, the second prayer was probably, and God, please give Elizabeth and me a baby like you did Abraham and Sarah. Amen. So he prays and he opens his eyes and here's what happens. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Whew, it's a big day. <laughs> he thought he was just going to drop incense, right? Drop incense, say a couple prayers, get out, no big deal. I've done it all now. Whew. But no, he opens his eyes and an angel shows up. It's about to get good, right? And it says, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. I mean, we're lucky. I mean, we don't know how old he was. But we're lucky this old guy didn't fall over and die at that point. And they, they, they would actually tie, sometimes they would tie ropes around the priest's ankle in case they did die. If they looked on the presence of God, they, they would, they, they didn't, no one else could go in there. So they would pull him out. And it says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. We sang this, right? We sang, we actually, we sang about the angel talking to Mary. This is the angel talking to Elizabeth, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But they say the same things. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. See, that's why I think maybe he, was pray he prayed that second prayer. Let me ask you, what have you stopped praying for? I mean, it's easy to say, well, God hasn't answered. Well, no, 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 he actually always answers. Yes, no, or later. That's pretty much the way the answer goes. And he just has different answers. Sometimes it's not the answer you're looking for. Sometimes it's not the answer you're ready for. Zechariah, we know, just kept praying. He kept loving. He kept serving. He kept worshiping God. He kept loving his wife, caring for his wife. God hadn't answered yes yet. God hadn't answered no. God just seemed to kept answering later. Or maybe Zechariah had heard no answer, but the answer in God's mind was later. And in that moment, God said, today the answer is yes. Look, you should keep praying. You should keep praying. Angel says, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. 
So again, names mean a lot in that day. John's name means God is gracious. And this is true. So the angel shows up and he says, you're going to have a boy, name him John. His name means God is gracious. And then he goes on to say, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. So this is good. This is really good. So Herod is the mighty king, right? What what does the angel say to, to Zechariah about his son, John? He will be great before the Lord. We know Herod is Herod the Great, but the angel says, eh, not really. I mean, people down here think he's great, but John will be great. Herod might make more money, build more buildings, conquer more people, have more followers, but he won't give his life to humbly serve God like your son will. He'll be the great one. Listen, friends, don't let Greatness be defined by the standards of the world and the people like Herod. If you love God and you serve God and you accept his providence in your life and you walk with him faithfully, being and doing whatever it is that he appoints for you to do, then you are great in the eyes of God. And, and this is the truth. And, and the truth is, it's only in the eyes of God that really matters. And so he talks about how he must not drink strong wine or wine or strong drink. So you know, basically what God is saying here is, I'm going to start picking this up a little bit. Zechariah, I want you to raise your son and to basically give up his freedom. He's not saying that, that he's, there is no biblical prohibition against strong drink in and of itself. Drunkenness, yes. But John would be, just like everybody else, biblically free to drink strong drink. But God says to Zechariah, I am going to bind his conscience for this one particular man, he's not permitted to drink. So no wine or no hard alcohol of any kind. So giving up, basically giving up his freedom. And giving up your freedom is, is sometimes a necessary thing to do. It's not always necessary, but sometimes it might be. So he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. When? Even from his mother's womb. This is amazing. This is amazing to me. According to the Holy Scriptures, now we see this in more than one place, but particularly here, we see that people, we know people are made in the image and the likeness of God, and they're gifted with dignity and value and worth, regardless of how they come into the world, and God honors them, God cherishes them, and God knows them from the time they're in their mother's womb. That's what, that's what, that's what the scripture says. So what we're seeing here in, in Luke is God is saying, look, there is right now, God is telling Zechariah, there is a baby in Elizabeth's womb. You'll read later here in a couple weeks, we'll read about how when the baby met Mary, like when Elizabeth and Mary met with each other and Mary had Jesus in her belly and Elizabeth had John the baptizer in hers, that she felt John, she felt her baby leap. And it actually says the word that's actually used in the Greek is the baby left in her womb. And the interesting thing about that word baby in the Greek is it's the same exact word that's used later when it says that children gathered around Jesus and sang around Jesus. So God would look at a five or six-year-old child and use the same exact word for that child as he did for the one that was in Elizabeth's womb. It says, John will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. So God, what does that mean? Filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb? None of you were like that. We were born natural sinners, not John. God decided that he would save and love and call John before he was ever born. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So, so that's where, again, remember Malachi, what kind of prophet's he going to send? One like Elijah. 
So this angel is saying, okay, Zechariah, your boy, just like the Holy Spirit filled Elijah, you know Elijah, Zechariah would have known Elijah. He's going to fill your boy. Just like Elijah was a prophet, your boy is going to be a prophet. This is an amazing day for Zechariah. It's his big moment. Go in, drop the incense, smell it, pray, get out. He wasn't planning for this much. (laughs) He got a lot more than he bargained for. And he says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. There's the Malachi reference. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So at this, Zechariah should have heard that word and shut his mouth. (laughs) Like a lot of guys, right? (laughs) He should have just been, woo, and go home, right? (laughs) I'm done. But instead he starts talking. Zechariah says to the angel, how will I know this? Well, let's review, Zechariah. You've been asking for decades, can I have a baby? You won the dice rolling game today. This is your one shot. The presence of God is right here. I'm an angel. You were in front of the incense. You said, give me a baby. And so I came out and said, yeah, what else would you like? And he says, well, how do I know? How do I know? We we laugh at the guy, but how many of us are like that? God says something to you. You're like, I don't know. I don't know, God. I don't know. Like, like all all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. God's love is unconditional for you. Yeah, but boy, I I don't know. I I did this really bad thing. He forgives that. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. He says all of your sins. That's what it says, all of your sins. Well, even that one too. Yeah, that's what it means. That's what it means. You could pray for something your whole life, and God says yes. And you can still say, seriously? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Are you, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm an angel. <laughs> Literally, a messenger from God. That's what an angel is. And so Zechariah's like, how shall I know this? For I am an old man. And the angels were like, I didn't know you're old. Like, we don't know ages. We're angels. We've been around for a long time. And he says, my wife is advanced in years. She's no spring chicken. That's what the Greek says. <laughs> <laughs> and the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. So he gives him his answer. He gives him his name. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. It's like, Zechariah, do you know where I just was? Like, the presence of God is here in this room where you came and dropped incense. I'm standing right beside him the whole time. You just happen to see me right now. Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, looked at me and he said, Go tell Zechariah before he leaves that his prayer's been answered. I mean, come on, Zechariah, your prayer's answered. You get to have a baby. He says, I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So like Sarah and Abraham, he didn't believe God. Unlike Mary, who will believe later when we get to Mary's story. So the angel says, you know what? You're just going to shut up now. You should have shut up earlier. Now you're not going to be able to say anything for, for you know, the whole term of this pregnancy. You're just going to have to be silent. Just need to wait patiently for God to open up your wife's womb and, and deliver your son. What an amazing, amazing word this is. An amazing thing taking place. The angel's just like, hey, you know what? Just shut up and wait. And then you'll see that promise fulfilled. So the people were waiting for Zechariah outside the, the, the temple. They're like, hey, where's the old guy? You know, you know uh, 
Where's he at? They were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized he had probably seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. So he's supposed to come out and sort of pronounce a blessing and say a prayer and lead a song, but he comes out and nothing. The only thing he's able to do is like some kind of hand gestures. He, may, probably, he knows no sign language. He's just trying to communicate with them. And so probably another priest just stepped forward and finished it up. And when his time of service was ended, we need to get through this, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So what does Elizabeth do? Nothing for five months. Nothing. Zechariah comes home. Elizabeth's like, I feel funny. Oh, yeah. Somehow tells her, you're pregnant. And she's just like, the Lord has heard our prayer. I'm just going to worship him for five months. I could just see maybe for five months her doing nothing but maybe, maybe rubbing her belly, making blankets, setting up the nursery, and rejoicing that she has a mute husband. <laughs> I mean, can you, can you picture her being like, God, I thank you so much for this baby and the mute husband. <laughs> I, all my prayers have been answered. <laughs> for nine months, I win every argument. Thank you. I just, I, you know, don't you just love this picture of Elizabeth? I mean, God loves her. He blesses her. He answers her prayer. She's going to be a mom. Her son's going to be a prophet. Her son's going to be the prophet to prepare the way of the coming of Jesus, the one that they remember reading about and hearing about, the one that's going to fulfill the promises of Malachi. This is happening. It is finally happening. It's going to happen. And all of this is to prepare the way of the coming of Jesus, to deal with our sins, to deal with what? Our shame. You see what Elizabeth said there at the end? The Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach. What's that word mean? She was ashamed. She had no children. It was a big deal. The Lord has taken away my reproach among the people. Maybe people made her feel ashamed. But she had it. It was there. And you see, that's what God does. He comes. He's our, he is our mediator. He, he comes and he forgives our sin and he removes our shame. And that's why we gather together to worship. So all of the ministry of the temple that we talked about today is fulfilled. All of that is fulfilled in Jesus. That's why we're all about Jesus. God comes to take away today at this very moment your shame, your disgrace. He comes to take that upon himself. The Bible says that when Jesus went to the cross, he endured the cross and he did what? Scorning its shame. See, friends, Jesus wants to lift from you today all of your shame. He wants to take away your shame so that you can be like Elizabeth and just worship and celebrate and enjoy him forever. That's it. God loves you. So for all of us who have sinned, just give that to, to Jesus today. Just give it to him right now. As we come and we take communion together, as we, as we sing this next song, as we focus on Jesus, just worship as Elizabeth did with joy because God is good. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this beautiful, true story. 
that took place in the days of Herod in the city of Jerusalem, in the location of the temple, in the shadow of a false king, this plan just begins to unfold for the coming of the King of Kings. And we thank you for these words that first were given to us by Malachi many, many years ago that were then later fulfilled in John, who is called the grace of God. That's what his name means. And God, we thank you that today you forgive our sin and you lift our shame, that you took this, this scorned woman, Elizabeth, and you let her have unprecedented joy. And I thank you that for five months, she set an example. For five months, God, she didn't say anything to anyone. She just was happy to be in your presence to worship you. So may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have that kind of worship in our hearts at this moment, in this day, right now, in Jesus' name. Amen.